You are listening to Subtle Disruptors Melbourne. This is the first series of the podcast, Subtle Disruptors, telling the stories of those who are quietly having an amazing positive impact on their city and the world. I think the word purpose is really important um, and something that I think about a lot when I go shopping is that will it even serve any purpose in my life? Whatever the actual reason may be, we all have some reason for what we put on each morning. It may be what is expected at work. It might reflect our overall mood. It might be to convey how we want to be seen. It can be used to reveal or hide the internal and the external. For most of us, one of these reasons is probably not to do with how and why the garment was made. Those that make what we wear are invisible to us. For this week's guest, questions like these of how we all relate to fashion brought her to the point of creating a magazine to explore these ideas and to working for an organisation that accredits brands that have ethical supply chains. I'm Adam Murray, and thanks for joining me as I talk with Sigrid McCarthy about the subtle disruption of the purchasing and wearing of clothes. So, um, yeah, Siggy, so good to be talking with you today. You as well. Do you mind starting by explaining where we are? Well, we're in my teeny tiny flat in Clifton Hill. Um, it's tucked away near Darling Gardens. Um, I live here by myself and a collection of um, children next door at the primary school that you might be able to hear. Um, yeah, I've been here for maybe three years. Yeah. Yeah. And do you just live here or what else happens in this space? Well, it was kind of my studio for a few years. Um, I was working on my magazine here until I really needed something to encourage me to actually be productive. Um, yeah. I got to a point where I felt like there was no separation between work and home life, so yeah. I've since moved to a studio for my job. Um, but yeah, I, I still work here. I mean, I find myself on the couch horizontal with my laptop way too often, yeah. sending emails and stuff. But mostly I'm trying to separate that to try and make this more of a home life. Um, yeah, something a bit more relaxing. Do you find it's more productive that way, to be having work in a separate location to where your home life is? Yeah, I think prior to the shift, I was kind of in a limbo all the time where I was sort of working and sort of living, but not really doing either of those well. Um, And since I've got um, a space and a studio, I feel like when I go there, I'm switched on and I actually work and there are people around me encouraging me to do so as well. And when I come here, yeah, it feels more like I can switch off and enjoy though it's work in progress I think that sort of balance is always hard um, especially when you love what you do and you always want to do it um, even when I'm at home I'm still finding myself creeping into work mode yeah totally like I'm I'm sort of working from home at the moment as well I eventually I think I want to go to a studio space like what you're talking about or a co-working space but, yeah um, it's just not the way it is right now but it's part of me that that likes um, not having too much of a separation and part of me that is always checking the computer (laughs) as well. And I think when you've got like your emails on your phone as well, it doesn't really matter where you are, it comes up on your screen. So I could be at a bus stop or not that I catch buses, but if I was at a bus stop, (laughs) I'm sure I would check my phone. But yeah, it's making, it's increasingly difficult to keep work between a certain amount of hours and particularly because I work at Ethical Clothing Australia during set work hours and then have the magazine as a side project. It doesn't really have that sort of formal 
work structure. Um, it's kind of on, at night time or on the weekends, early in the morning, on my lunch break. So it doesn't really feel like I can sort of be like, okay, this is my work time, yeah. then I'll switch off. And it's only really as big as I put in. Um, it could continue to grow the more I put in, but I kind of need to work out a way of thinking about longevity as opposed to just like running in guns blazing and then burning out six months later. Um, yeah. So it's something I'm still adjusting to and sorting out. So. T tell us about your side project to start with, the magazine. Yeah, it's yeah. called Intent Journal. Um, it's a, an online publication at the moment and it explores the slow fashion movement and people's relationships with clothing. Um, I find it sort of a nice outlet for me to explore my own relationship with fashion and how it's evolved over the years and as I've grown up and I guess Essentially, I'd like to question the fashion system and explore how we've gotten to something so um, crazy um, in terms of the way that the fashion industry operates and the way that people engage with fashion now and how people's view of um, quality has really changed and how people keep bringing things into their lives that don't necessarily serve any purpose or mean anything to them intense kind of a way for me to um, question other people and get them to share their views and act as a platform for exploration, I guess, in that way. Yeah. yeah. And there's so much to unpack here. Like, I'm, I'm just <laughs> going through my own life and the different stages of my relationship with fashion to where it is today. Yeah. Where did it start with you? Like, where did your interest in fashion start? I guess when I was in high school, I was particularly interested in how all the girls wanted to look the same. I couldn't quite understand why they all were shopping at the same stores and getting the same styles of clothing. And I really, I felt left out in that way because I kind of wanted to look like them as well, but at the same time didn't really understand how they could wear something and then one day say, oh no, that's no longer cool. And so I kind of found it all a bit confusing. So I started exploring op shops and different ways of finding clothing that felt truer to my style. Um, and I think it's really interesting how people use clothing as a way to ex express part of themselves um, in a physical sense. And so, yeah, I guess I started just... I was writing a blog, and it's, I always feel so embarrassed to talk about this blog. <laughs> it had the worst name as well. It's called Colour Me Red, because it was my favourite colour back then. Yeah. Um, and it kind of just acted like a, um, an online scrapbook with photos that sort of inspired me, more of like a mood board. And then after a while, I just started thinking more about why I was interested in fashion, and it wasn't because of the aesthetic. Like, I definitely love the design and how beautiful the industry is, but I just found there was something more that was drawing me to it, and I wanted to explore that. Um, and that kind of just evolved into, I guess, an online journal about why it is we can buy something that we don't care about and then dispose of it so soon after and not think about the hands behind that garment and people at the bottom of the supply chain. And I guess at the time when I first started writing this blog, I didn't really understand myself and it wasn't like I was trying to answer these questions. It was more sort of like a musing, like a way of me musing on these things and kind of figuring it out myself and then it's kind of just evolved since then. Yeah. yeah. What What have you discovered about your own relationship with fashion then? You know, what has drawn you to it and that 
you know, helped you to or made you want to be still involved with it? Yeah, I would definitely say I'm addicted to what I'm doing, and I, I'm not sure exactly why I'm addicted. I just know that pa like there's so much power that can be found in the fashion industry, and all this power is being sort of um, used for the wrong reasons and shifting us away from what makes fashion so beautiful. It's becoming more of a, a garment industry than a fashion industry, where it's not necessarily design-led, it's consumption-led, and... I think I'm fascinated by how, well, the psychology behind fashion and how people are using clothing as a crutch to try and make themselves feel better as opposed to using it as a way of just living and seeing it as function and maybe seeing it as a way to enhance their lives through buying things that actually make them feel good for a long time and there's a sense of longevity there, whereas now it's kind of... We've evolved past that and we just keep buying these things that don't mean anything to us. Um, for me, I, de I definitely have a personal uniform. Um, if I was to show you my cupboard now, it's entirely black. Um, there's a few shades of grey there and maybe a bit of white. Um, but yeah, my own relationship with clothing, I guess, it has changed. I Over the years, I definitely sort of found myself falling into trends slightly. I never fully was dictated by trends in magazines, um, but now I've really found something that works for me and something that makes me feel quite confident, which is to wear all black. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, st I still learn a lot about myself through clothing, um, and it's, it's forever changing. Um, and I think what makes it so exciting having this magazine, Intent Journal, is that my own understanding of ethics in fashion and the fashion system is always changing because I'm learning from the people that I'm profiling um, and they bring up things that I would never would have thought of um, prior to that as well. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just before we get into some of those issues, I just... It was, it's pretty, been pretty interesting for me, I've noticed, over the past two years. Like, I think I always had a bit of an interest in clothing, and, but I could always notice when I didn't really perhaps think that um, I was maybe not thinking that highly of myself, and it would come out in myself and not really caring about the clothes that I put on. Yeah. And I kind of had this reflection, and then over the last year, um, I kind of... This is, yeah, that's a bit of a weird thing, but I stand in the mirror when I get dressed and I stand in the mirror and I look at it and I just think, does this kind of, does it feel like it, this outfit fits who I am or what I'm feeling today? Does it kind of ring true yeah. with who I am? Does that make sense? No, it totally does. Yeah. And I think the amazing thing about clothing is that we all wear it every day. There's no, like, even if you don't consider yourself fashionable, you engage in the clothing industry and you use clothing to say something about like yourself, you know, even if you're not really thinking about it, you have chosen to wear X or Y. Um, and I'm so interested to know why people, you know, one day might wear something and feel really good in that, and then the next day don't feel that that's like a, the right skin for them, you know? It's like such a powerful um, form of expression, and it can be a crutch, and it can be something that people hide behind, or something that people wear as a way of lying about themselves. I don't know, it's just so fascinating. And especially in Melbourne, there's so many amazing different styles here. And 
it's always really funny to see people trying to look so different, yet they all end up looking the same, <laughs> you know, particularly in the north side here. Um, yeah. And I think people mistake my personal uniform for me as a way of me not necessarily being interested in fashion or wanting to express myself just because I do have a personal uniform and I wear similar things and I have no qualms being seen in the same clothes. I think people sometimes are crippled by this fear that someone's going to see them in the same outfit, God forbid, you know. Um, but I actually do feel very strongly about what I wear and I, I do think that it says a lot about me um, and it helps me behave the way that I want to behave in public. I don't know if that makes sense, yeah. but it gives me the strength to talk out and speak about, you know, how I'm feeling and why I want to do X in the fashion industry. Like, it's not easy pushing for change in the fashion industry. And I think being in all black for some reason just makes me feel like I can change the industry. Yeah. <laughs> Silly. I don't yeah. know if I'd have that same power if I was wearing like a maxi floral dress or something, you know? <laughs> um, the other thing was that I've noticed myself over the past 12 months which you touched on earlier too, was about longevity in our purchases too. And yeah. I haven't had the same cash flow the past 12 months, basically zero cash flow that I've had previously to that. And part of, uh, one of the ramifications for that has just been not buying new clothes really, unless they're absolutely necessary. And what I've yeah. noticed is a couple of things, just how long my clothes do actually last. Yeah. Um, like, you know, more than one season, amazing. And um, that... Also, that um, how f few items of clothing I actually do need. Yeah. Too. yeah, it's crazy that we've kind of fallen into this false sense of economy where we think that we need to buy all these really cheap things often as a way of saving money. When you look at the actual sort of um, nuts and bolts of the financial side of things, you're not actually saving any money if you buy, you know, three of the same t-shirt for $10 at H&M and have to replace it in three months' time as, a buying, as opposed to buying, like, one really good quality t-shirt that you're more inclined to look after, I think, when you've invested in a piece. And you don't even have to spend that much more to find something that's of a better quality. Um, but I think when you start accumulating all these really cheap, poorly made clothing that you don't care about, you're not even inclined to keep it in your life for a, an extended period of time because not only is it a poor quality garment, but you've invested no love into that piece. And I think the more you have, the less you have to wear. You know, you get this schizophrenic wardrobe, there's no curation there. Mm. You've got all these individual pieces that don't necessarily work together as a cohesive outfit. Um, and we've really kind of worked ourselves into this, I don't know, it's such a warped relationship with clothing now where we go shopping, instead of getting a hobby, we go shopping and buy something and bring it home and then realize it's not right for us. And so it sits there in our cupboard, maybe with the tag still on it. And yeah, I just, um, I can't quite really comprehend how we've gotten to this point um, and how we can continue to consume in this way when there's such a limited amount of resources, environmental and social um, resources. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also this moment of, that I feel when I, you know, I clean out my wardrobe and I go down to the selvers, it's almost like, I don't know, I'm 
at least someone else is going to wear it, which I think may be not quite right, Matt. Maybe you've thought about that. It, it doesn't well. actually, like, that's not necessarily the case, which I think a lot of people don't know. Salvos and these op shops and stuff take maybe 10 to 20% of what they're donated. Um, I think one of the reasons is because people just donate crap. They don't even wash it or think that, you know, it's something that anyone else would want to wear. They just want to cleanse it from their lives, and that's kind of like the go-to um, solution. Um, but a lot of the clothing gets shipped over to sort of developing countries um, and these countries are now really struggling, their economies are um, struggling because there's no longer a fashion industry for them over there because their whole um, population is just relying on these um, second-hand clothes from white western sort of countries. Um, and it's sad because these countries need to like, have an industry that develops and rely on local um, talent and being able to upskill and encourage people to have, you know, these jobs and um, make their own clothing, yet we're just kind of shipping all of our shit over to there that we don't care about. And they don't necessarily care about either, but they're in a situation where, you know, financially maybe they can't afford to buy their own. So, yeah. I don't know. And then worst case scenario, it goes to landfill. Um, yeah. So a lot goes to landfill. Yeah. Yeah, so I think we, we think that we're doing the right thing and, you know, it's better than just chucking it into the bin, but long story short, it ends up going to the same place anyway most of the time. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think I had a suspicion that might be the case. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we were chatting uh, last week, one of the things we talked about was, you know, well, you know, in my mind, a lot of the key ethical issues in fashion was solved, you know, 10 years ago. And the big one yeah. that sort of came out around about that time, or probably earlier, or still while I was at school, I think was, you know, the sweatshops thing and yeah. um, some, you know, really big brand names got um, tarnished as a result of that. And in my mind, that kind of got rectified at that time. Yeah. What are the big issues in fashion right yeah, now? Yeah, they definitely still exist. Um, they kind of, they've continued to exist since the, you know, 80s and 90s when all of those issues with Nike um, sort of came to the surface um, across the media. But I think there's so many issues in the industry and across other industries as well that the media gives something a really small soundbite and then goes on to the next issue. And then the fashion industry has kind of been going a really scary way for quite a while now and continuing um, has continued to be unregulated but kind of no one's really pulled them up on what they're doing so we've kind of gone this way thinking that all is hunky-dory when under the surface there's been some pretty horrific um, social and environmental um, issues um, sort of amplifying I would say if I was to condense it down to a few of the issues, just to not to overwhelm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the biggest issues is just a lack of traceability in the industry. Um, a lot of companies now outsource um, their production and have no idea where the clothing ends up being made. Um, we've got, you know, given the outsourcing nature of the industry, you can end up having multiple tiers of a supply chain. Um, and all of a sudden you've got your clothing made in horrendous conditions, but you've been able to sort of divorce yourself from that responsibility because, um, you know, you didn't employ those people directly. Um, it had been subcontracted out again, so it's not your problem. Um, so you do have mostly women, I would say it's a predominantly female workforce in places like Bangladesh, China, um, India, 
um, Sri Lanka, um, these women working under horrific conditions um, and not having a, you know, a strong union to protect their rights and not having the principal company caring about them, um, having factory managers that are being squeezed to um, produce a certain amount of clothing under um, very, very tight um, time frames um, and for very little money. So you have a lot of people in dire situations making clothing for people like us who don't even necessarily care about the garments when it finally comes to our closet. Um, so there's this real disconnect between you know, the designer, maker and the wearer. Um, even though we're in such a connected world, there's always been this pressure for us to not um, associate ourselves with the people behind the clothing. And I think, yeah, so traceability is a huge issue. Um, and even for people that want to be buying ethical products, it's, in it's incredibly difficult. I mean, you ask a brand how they ensure that their workers are being treated fairly, a lot of the time they would not even know themselves. So how can they communicate that clearly to a customer? Yeah. Um, and then on the other side of things, so that's a social sort of issue, um, you've got the environmental impact. Um, the fashion industry is the second largest polluter in the world. Um, just Behind. Oil. Yeah. <laughs> so... You know, it's a hugely negative um, industry in that sense and continues to be so. Um, and we do have, you know, a, a minute, you know, we're not going to have these resources forever. Um, so if we keep going this way, it's going to affect everyone. But of course, it affects the people in developing countries first. So we can continue to just turn a blind eye. Um, but yeah, I think. Probably, I would say, one of the biggest issues at the moment is that we have these fast fashion companies producing wild volumes of clothing, um, poorly made clothing, um, by people who aren't being looked after, and they're being sold to people who just don't even think about what they're buying and why. There's a complete lack of mindfulness in the industry at the moment, um, and we've kind of gotten to a point now where Clothing is so accessible and so cheap, you know, you can buy something for less than a coffee and a piece of avocado and toast um, these days. It's just become so easy for us to just go and buy something on a whim without really thinking about it. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of issues. <laughs> yeah. And I think the issues aren't just at a sort of um, maker level, they're also at a consumer level and a government level as well for not supporting um, or not forcing um, companies to sort of take responsibility for those in their supply chain. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, three massive issues. And a lot of interrelations there with um, other parts of our life yeah. too, which yeah. is pretty interesting. So you're, you work for um, Ethical Clothing Australia, yeah. is that right? Yeah. And so talk a little bit about that, and then, yeah, we'll talk a little yeah. bit about more. So ECA, which is probably easier than Ethical Clothing Australia, ECA is an accreditation body. Um, we work with local textile clothing and footwear companies that manufacture in Australia. Um, and we've got about 90 accredited brands at the moment. Um, we essentially map an entire local supply chain, so right from the top down to the bottom, which might involve um, a home worker. Um, a lot of the industry now locally, because there aren't as many formal factory um, settings, a lot of the industry sort of works from home and in informal garages. Um, You're talking in Melbourne and around Australia. That's yeah. That's going to be the way it works. Yeah. yeah, so there'd be probably some around here, 
Um, a lot of the time they're Vietnamese migrant women um, who don't necessarily know exactly um, what they're entitled to. Um, they can't always speak English, so it's hard for them to reach out um, and yeah, seek to learn what they're um, entitled to. Um, we kind of, I guess we exist because there are issues in Australia. People do assume that made in Australia means made ethically. It's not always the case. Um, we're here to sort of protect those in the supply chain and make sure that they're receiving their legal entitlements, that they're working in safe conditions, um, and that, you know, we can communicate to consumers in a clear way, so via a trademark, um, that the garment has been made under ethical conditions. Um, because I think that's another big issue, is that it's really hard to know how businesses are using these buzzwords, you know, ethical, sustainable. Um, so it's important to have some sort of third-party tick that reinforces that that company is doing the right thing by their makers. Um, so yeah, that's my day job. I'm in media and comms. Okay. So, yeah. So is, I'm envisaging a current affairs style, you know, raids of places in <laughs> investigating all levels of the supply chain. Is it, is it a bit like that sometimes? Uh, I mean, we're definitely not a prosecutor or sort of like a breaking down doors type of operation. Um, we work collaboratively with companies um, and we do find issues in supply chains. I mean, it's not always an easy, um, straightforward process. And, you know, we do find that there's a next level tier of a supply chain that the company didn't even know existed. Um, but when we find those issues, we work with them to rectify them so that they are legally compliant. In saying that, though, we are um, a multi-stakeholder approach, which involves both industry and the textile, clothing and footwear union um, of Australia. And the union is the one that conducts the audits every year to ensure that everything's above board. Um, and then that has to happen every year when a company becomes re-accredited. Okay. Um, and if something was to change in someone's supply chain, they'd have to let us know so then we could um, yeah, make sure that that new supplier is also being treated fairly. Um, the industry is a very um, complicated one and it depends on the season and some people, you know, might be using one maker one season and then changing for the next. And there's not a huge industry here when it comes to um, sort of knitwear machines and some of um, the skills we're lacking here. So, which yeah. it means that companies end up having to go overseas um, for some of their stuff. If it's a winter collection, they might do all their knits overseas. Would you do investigations over there if that was the case? No, it just stops no. in Australia. Yeah. The, the reason that we exist and we can exist is because we have the legal framework here for us to sort of represent. Well, our accreditation reflects um, whatever the current legislation is. Yeah. So in places like Bangladesh where we don't, or, yeah, where they don't have strong unions over there, where there isn't necessarily a minimum wage that equates to a living wage, um, or there isn't, you know, the legal framework there, it wouldn't be possible for us to exist. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it is important for us to sort of connect with other organisations overseas that we can point brands to. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, it's quite daunting for brands to um, outsource overseas and not have that close sort of relationship with the makers and be able to oversee that production process. Um, so we do try and encourage people to do as much as possible, I'm sure. Yeah. So once accredited, is it on a, a clothing item by item basis that, you know, you can get the 
the trademark yeah, it's, it's an ethical product. Yeah, it, it's a voluntary thing, so someone doesn't have to use the trademark if they don't want to. Um, we love when our brands do because it's a clear way of um, engaging a customer. Um, you know, whether it's on the swing tag or on their website, um, you know, maybe sewn into the garment. But our brands, you know, use the trademark or use the accreditation for different reasons. So. Some people use it as a strong part of their marketing and an integral part of their business story. Um, and then other people just use it for internal risk management. They just like to know that from a business perspective, everything's above board and there won't be any current affair people barging <laughs> in like doing a, you know, a spruik on what, what they're up to. Um, because it is important for businesses to understand just how damaging it can be for a brand. Um, if some reputation, um, something's come up to um, damage their reputation, it's pretty hard for them to backpedal out of something like that. So yeah. the brands that only use the accreditation for their own peace of mind, um, I can kind of understand why they don't want to promote it, but I would love all of our brands to go yeah. forward. Um, what can consumers do then? So obviously they can look out for that kind of tag. What? It, as you say, like it's very hard even for the businesses themselves to know, you know, all the implications of the decisions they're making and who ends up making the garment. What can consumers do to, uh, I guess, be more mindful and ethical in their purchasing? Yeah, it's it's a, a tough one um, because there's so many different elements as well. I think we talked about this last week. Um, the term ethical is can be a subjective one, um, and it's hard for a business to tick all of the boxes. You know, Iron Williams again, um, as an example, they do all of their leather goods in South Australia, so all of their boots, and they're accredited with ECA. But it is leather, um, so is that ethical? I mean, as a consumer, I think it's really important for you to take the time to sort of understand your own values and how that shapes your reading. Um, of ethics and fashion and what you are willing to support, what you're not willing to support. I would like to see more people just being mindful of what they're buying and why. Um, I think instead of just going out and buying something on a whim, it would be really great for people to sort of decide what they actually need, take the time to sort of look at their wardrobe and see whether you know there are any key elements that need to be filled as opposed to just going out and thinking that you're gonna buy I don't know, a pair of jeans and then coming home with another coat because 10 coats isn't enough, so you needed another one. Yeah. Um, I would love for people to ask more questions to brands. Um, I think brands have been sort of able to play the ignorant card for a really long time, and so I think a big part of us moving forward as an industry in the right direction um, it needs consumers to be putting that pressure on them, um, asking the right questions, um, trying to understand more about their supply chain and where the clothing's actually made. Um, I would love for brands to realize that talking about their makers isn't going to affect their branding, if you know what I mean. I think a lot of businesses try and keep it really separate. Pretend like, that doesn't even happen. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's all visual merchandising and beautiful here, you know. We put a lot of money into seeing these clothes come to life, um, but we don't want to tell you anything about our makers because that's a really ugly side of fashion, you know. Yeah. Um, I like to elevate our accredited brands so they're seen as the more desirable option because not only are they creating a really high quality 
quality and aesthetically pleasing product, but they're doing so with integrity um, and they're having a relationship with the makers and taking sort of credible steps to ensure that the makers are being treated fairly. Um, mm. Because, yeah, it is, it is for me a draw card. I mean, I'm never going to buy something just because it's got a nice story. It needs to be design-led and it needs to be something that I feel is, you know, true to my um, personal uniform or something that I find aesthetically pleasing. But if I had two of the exact same dress and then I knew that one was made under ethical conditions, of course I'm going to be choosing that one over the other one. Um, and I would like to see going forward it be not something that we celebrate. Um, I think it's really important that it becomes an industry standard um, and that consumers can just go out and shop and know that that has been made ethically as opposed to having to seek it out and you know do all this research. And it's definitely the case at the moment that people put it in the too hard basket because they yeah. don't have time to think about it and research and the answers aren't clear. So they're not going to um, yeah just go out and do, you know, I think, <laughs> It's unfair to expect people to do that. I do it because I love it and it's my life and I work in it, but I can't expect the average Joe Blow to, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah, it does, totally. And that, I mean, they're the things that were going through my mind as well. Like, you know, what are some of the ways that the friction can be removed from all that digging and investigating when people are buying things? But, you know, I've recently been challenged about food actually and the amount of money that I spend on food and not trying to spend less which has always been my mentality like how can I spend less but um, the gym I go to actually encourages people to eat more food and more better quality food as well which yeah. essentially means changing the percentage of your budget to, um, so that more of your budget goes towards buying food yeah. um, and I wonder if a similar thing is there for fashion too but you know not not necessarily buying more, but spending more money on items of clothing, knowing that you're getting a good quality item that's going to last for a long period of time that's been made in an ethical way, like that. Yeah. That switch, um, that's a pretty big switch for people. Yeah. Well. yeah. And I think at the moment it's also incredibly difficult for people to actively make that switch because a price tag isn't necessarily a reflection of an ethical supply chain either, yeah. or even quality. I mean, a lot of things are very highly marked up, yet then it's not justified. Um, you know, a dress might not be lined, or it hasn't been made that well, and it's been made in unethical conditions, but you're paying for a name, or you're paying for, you know, a brand reputation. Um, I would love to see price being indicative of the fact that the workers yeah, it's trickled down to the right people and the workers are actually receiving that money um, and that it is a product that would last a long time. In order for us to get there though I do think that we need to shift our perceptions so we see clothing as being a long-term investment as opposed to just a disposable sort of um, perishable. I think we've started to see clothing as being something that we get for a quick fix and then forget about it um, or replace. Um, I think longevity and durability is probably one of the biggest, and life cycle is probably the biggest for me, um, the biggest driver in sustainability. You know, there's nothing sustainable about buying something that's made out of organic cotton 
but only wearing it for six months and then throwing it out, you know? Um, what something is made out of is really important, but also the role of the consumer in sustainability is to ensure that like that garment is treated you know, treated fairly. You can treat it fairly, but you know what I mean? Treat it with respect and treat it as something that means something to you and serves a purpose and, you know, only wash it when it needs to be washed. And, you know, there's all these different things that we can do as a way of extending the life cycle of a product. Um, and they're kind of exciting opportunities, I think, for us to start engaging with clothing differently. And I think we're coming to a point, and maybe it's just because I hang out with a lot of people with the same mentality, but I feel that we're coming to a point where people are wanting to get back to a stage in life where they value quality and get something more from clothing and something more from food and we want something that's genuine, we want something that, um, I don't know, that brings more than just clutter to our lives, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. I definitely think as I'm getting older, I'm starting to only bring things into my life that I really feel will add value um, or serve a purpose. I think the word purpose is really important um, and something that I think about a lot when I go shopping is that will it even serve any purpose in my life? Um, there's really no joy for me in bringing something into my life that serves no purpose. Mm. Um, if anything, it just kind of adds this weight onto my shoulders um, and it ends up being something that I want to get rid of because it's kind of cluttering up my day-to-day -day life. Um, yeah, I can't even remember what your question was, so I just went on to a big <laughs> I love it, because it's got me thinking about a couple of other things. Is it, uh, is it Maria Kondo's book, who, she's uh, the, the, the Magic of Tidying Up, or something along those lines, oh, and I the big uh, minimalist, it's a quite a popular minimalist book at the moment, but um, I did this course last year, and one of the ladies on the course, Courtney Carver, she has this, um, she's all about... Um, yeah, living with less and all that kind of stuff. But one of her side projects is um, about her wardrobe. And yeah. she uh, she blogged about it and how she, I think she has about 33 items of clothing. I think it's called Project 33, anyway. Mm -hmm. Something along those lines. And so she actually goes around the States and brings her whole wardrobe with her in her bag and says, well, this, this is what I live with, yeah. um, you know, every day and every item. Uh, has a purpose and um, you know it does is not you know a weight on her shoulder it's there to fulfill a need yeah um, and just going back to the other book Maria I think it's Maria Kondo but she um, she says you know look at each item in your whole life and say does this thing bring me joy like yeah. is this bringing joy into my life and if not do I is there any other good reason why I should still keep yeah. it? So, yeah, what you were talking about there really um, yeah, rings yeah. true, I think, in, in different realms of our life as well. Totally. Yeah. I think it, ex it transcends, like, past fashion and it, it sort of relates to every aspect of our life. You know, as you get older, you start curating the friends that you have in your life and you try and filter them out so you've only got the ones that bring a joy, um, a sen sense of joy or... You know, there's a level of support there. You get rid of the toxic ones. Um, it's a quality of life, and I would like to see more people just kind of be more mindful of the way that they engage with clothing because um, there's so much joy to be had in clothing. I'm not saying that I'm anti-fashion and that everyone needs to wear just, you know, 
one thing and that's it. You know, you can't engage in the creativity of it. But I just think that the way that we've gone and the way that it stands now is that what makes fashion so beautiful is no longer really there. You know, we're always looking to the next thing. We're not really celebrating craftsmanship and celebrating, you know, authentic design and celebrating all the really beautiful things that the fashion industry has been built on. It's become this really sort of quick-paced, fast fashion um, knockoffs, and um, just it's always like next, 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 and clothing isn't made to last because people want you to buy the next thing, you know, they're not looking for you to hold on to something for a really long time. I was even just walking um, to my house before with my headphones in, you know, those white Apple headphones, and one of them stopped working, so I was listening to one ear, and I was like, this is so typical of Apple that these would only last, <laughs> you know, three months, so then I have to get the new, like, the new kind. And it's so true with clothing as well. They've been so many brands now create garments that unravel and lose shape quickly. It's not a mistake. They've tried to do it for the like, cheapest possible price, and they want you to buy the next version of it you know, in the next season. Um, so I think while we do have all of these issues inherent to the industry as it stands today, I like to keep things positive and see that there's actual actually all these sorts of um, opportunities for innovation and designers to come in and actually solve some of the issues and provide solutions and engage consumers on a level that they haven't engaged in for a while now and yeah I know it can be easy to dwell on all the really awful things and there are a lot of awful things but I think in order for us to sort of move forward and move towards a more transparent and beautiful and um, desirable industry, um, we kind of need to see that it's actually an exciting time for the industry and in order for us to sort of really drive change it needs to be done in a way that's respectful of the fact that change does take time but you can be aspirational in that change as opposed to like shaming people into going that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's really good. And are these, in terms of intent journal, are these are these the type of things that you write about in there and interview people about? Yeah. About that? Yeah, intent journal, I guess, for the most part, I ask similar questions because um, the content is um, a combination of editorial work and profiles, and the profiles ask our subjects to really... Um, think about how they engage with the fashion industry, where they see it going, um, what are some of um, the challenges that they've overcome when it comes to um, being more ethical, um, being more, and I hate the word sustainable, so I'm not going to say sustainable, <laughs> but be, them, be more mindful of um, or conscious in the way that they consume. Um, and I think the most exciting thing for me is that everyone has a different response. You ask the same question and people have different responses and raise issues that I'd never thought of prior. Um, most of the people that I've interviewed have worked in the fashion industry at some point, if not still. Um, and through that experience, they've really gained an understanding um, of where the industry has started off and how it's progressed to where we are now. Um, I ask people simple questions like, what does the slow fashion movement mean to you? Um, do you have a tre treasured piece of um, clothing in your wardrobe and why is it still there? Um, have you developed a personal uniform? 
um, when you look to the fashion system at the moment, um, what do you see as being you know, the biggest challenge um, that we need to overcome and the biggest opportunity? Because um, it's definitely, I don't want it to be a platform for people to rant and talk about how shit the industry is. I really want to use it as an opportunity to sort of show people that there, there are these more progressive ways of thinking and that there are these people doing really exciting things and seeing real potential in um, the future of the industry so that others are encouraged to sort of jump on board. Um, mm. I want it to be a bit of real talk as well though. I don't want to just scrape the surface and be like, this is all nice and hunky-dory. Um, some of the people that I've featured that I've loved the most are the ones that have really sort of dished out a bit of real talk and sort of um, pulled people up on their shit. Um, yeah. Yeah, which I think is important. Um, this industry is filled with egos and filled with um, people who do what they do because it makes them a lot of money and they want people to think that they're um, good when really they're not, you know, not necessarily the case. Um, so for me, I've interviewed people um, quite high up who have kind of said things that I didn't expect them to say um, because I thought that they would be a bit more sort of neutral as a way of protecting their brand um, or as a way of protecting relationships with other people that they have in the industry but they've kind of dished out some real sort of hard ass <laughs> stuff and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, if people want to read about that stuff, they can obviously go to your website to yes, check all so that out. Yes, so intentjournal.com. Um, but I hope to go to print at some point in the near future. I would really love for intent to be something tangible, be something that people care about, as opposed to just sort of um, quickly skimming through before going on to the next window tab. Um, I would love... It's all quite long form, um, so... When I ask people to be interviewed, they end up having to spend quite a bit of time answering the questions just because I really want it to be something where if someone reads it, they get an insight into that person as an individual and also how their personal values have shaped their work and um, influenced the direction that they've taken in the industry. So for me, having a paper product that someone can sit down and actually read is more effective than just scrolling down a screen. Um, so yeah, watch this space. Yeah, <laughs> exciting. Um, so yeah, you mentioned that there's a couple of questions that you ask, or a few questions that you ask all of your people that you interview. There's a couple that I ask at the end of the podcast as well. Yeah. The first one's about um, something that you, outside of fashion, that you daydream about disrupting one day. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Okay, I think I know. I think a lot about fashion, so sometimes when people ask me about things outside of fashion, I'm like, what, there's something outside of fashion? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's easy to be in that fishbowl though, you know, there's so many issues with what I'm thinking about that it's hard to sort of contemplate something else. Yeah. But I do daydream about, I was talking to my um, partner about this a little while ago, about how amazing it would be. We all complain about how um, high the rent is in inner Melbourne and Sydney and wherever you are. It would be so amazing if people who had all these really um, valuable skills and great attitudes moved out maybe an hour outside of Melbourne and we built like this really cool 
town without this sounding like a cult. It could, <laughs> could end up sounding like a cult. But if we had like cool bars and like, you know, like a cobbler and all these really old school skills, you know, all small business. Because um, a lot of my friends have small business, which I don't know if it's been intentional, but I surround myself with people that seem to have these really cool small um, empires. Yeah. Um, but it would be so great if we could ditch the city and maybe come in every now and again. I'm not saying we need to go fully off grid, but if we could have a chance to build a nice community where people actually cared about old fashioned um, skills and old fashioned um, trades and ways of building an economy that's not based on just money. Um, this yeah. is, I could talk about this for an entire hour. <laughs> but you know, like, I think what's so great about Intent Journal is I'm working with all these creatives and Intent Journal is a purely self-funded passion project at the moment. So I rely a lot on um, trading skills. So a photographer might shoot something for me and then I'll write something for them or I'll, you know, we all have all these different skills and different um, talent. I would love the idea of like a um, leather goods, um, I don't know, someone making shoes, like a cobbler, someone making shoes, then getting a favor from a plumber who then gets a favor from, I don't know, a baker and then gets a favor from um, a graphic designer. I don't know, I really like this idea of there being like a real appreciation for people's skills and an appreciation for the fact that you can't tick all the boxes and that some people are better than you and you're better than them and having this community where you actually value um, time and value um, the time it takes to make something and just a level of, yeah, a quality in life that I feel like we're slowly, like, losing here. Um, not that it's all awful in the city, there's some great things going on, but I love the idea of, like, market swaps and but yeah. not crafty, you know, I feel <laughs> like not just anyone with a hot glue gun and some like <laughs> That's a <sequence>. Yeah, you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean though, like people have these hands and have these skills, like my brother's a furniture maker and my older brother is an urban designer and there's all these amazing skills and people doing all this great stuff but so many people aren't supported in their pursuits because they would rather go to Ikea and buy something really cheap um, they don't want to pay my brother for the hours it takes to build a beautiful chair or whatever it is. Mm. I'd love to build a community of people that all value, yeah, what it takes to put something together and appreciate that good craftsmanship is still, yeah, still desirable. Yeah. Yeah. And having that, I mean, a, a big part of what you're talking about there is shortening the feedback loop between um, what you get and who made it and being able to, you know, have eye contact with them. Totally. Yeah. yeah, this whole, like, I talk about supply chains constantly, but how great would it be if you kind of, like, shortened that chain so dramatically that you actually had a relationship with the per person making the clothing? Yeah. There wasn't all these people in the middle. You could go to that um, furniture maker and say, hey, I would love for a table to have, you know, a really great dinner party with my friends. Then that person builds that table for you. You shake mm. hands. You appreciate that craftsmanship. You get to oversee that production process. Like there's something so beautiful in that story um, and that relationship between the, the designer and the buyer and yeah. 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 <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Some careful question. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, and the last one is, what's a subtle change that you've made in your own life that's helped you get to where you are today or you know, even sustains you on this path? I would say, yeah, over the past few years, I mentioned it before, I've really um, been quite selective in who I surround myself with. Um, I think it's so important to have this sort of sense of solidarity um, among those around you. Um, and a lot of the people that I hang out with have small business because it's an incredibly enduring, it's a very hard thing to have a small business, particularly when it makes no money. Uh, <laughs> can you call that a business? I don't know. But yeah, I've, I have these people in my life that are doing such amazing things and feel so strongly about what they're doing. You know, for me, I need people to be passionate about what they're doing. It could be the, for me, the dullest thing ever. They might be super passionate about that um, cobble, um, cobbled street or that blade of grass or whatever it is. But as long as they've got that fire in their belly that kind of rubs off on me and inspires me to, you know, pursue what I'm doing in a um, more of a long-term way. So I guess, yeah, on a personal level, I've subtly, I didn't even realize I was doing it, but over the past few years, just surrounding myself with really good people, um, really driven people, um, genuine people. I do find the fashion industry sometimes quite fickle. Um, so I've been able to sort of curate this lovely group of um, girls and guys um, who all see potential in um, changing the industry and changing it in a respectful way that isn't kind of going in guns blazing, um, but seeking out opportunities to inspire people to do better and buy better and yeah. live better. Yeah. yeah, I really like that. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for your time. No, thank awesome you. What a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Subtle Disruptors. I hope you got something out of it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, including any suggestions you have for guests. You can get me on email through adam at subtledisruptors.com. And if you enjoyed listening and would like to be part of getting the word out about the Subtle Disruptors of Melbourne, a great way to do this is through jumping into iTunes and rating and reviewing this podcast. I'm Adam Murray, and I look forward to hearing about your own subtle disruption. Bye for now.